0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 21st, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Is access to psychedelics and the consciousness altering impacts they can foster a straightforward matter of cognitive liberty? Mason Marks is a senior fellow and project lead on the Project on Psychedelic Law and Regulation at the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law, Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. We talked about the ways in which psychedelics raise questions about what cognitive liberty really looks like and how that liberty might be reflected in the law going forward. There was a lot of discussion about psychedelics for uh, assisting people who are having, uh, I'm just going to say mental difficulties, uh, difficulties that may or may not be physical in nature, but to to help people uh, grapple with those things and maybe either make different decisions about how their how their lives are going or to effectively process some sort of trauma that's uh, occurred uh, in their lives and we're going to talk a little bit more about where that conversation is right now but you advocate something that I think is is fairly provocative and um is is worth exploring at least uh, in the abstract initially just and that is cognitive liberty and that people in some ways, ought to have the ability to dramatically more easily access uh, these kinds of chemicals uh, for the purposes of improving their lives. Can, can you sort of spell out what you're, what you're advocating and, and where that fits in with what we
1: understand about our liberties? Absolutely. Yeah, certainly one of the most exciting applications of psychedelic substances is their use in mental health care where they might dramatically improve our ability to help people with certain medical conditions, because right now our ability is extremely limited. We've been using a lot of the same drugs and approaches for decades, maybe even half a century or more to treat things like treatment resistant depression. So that's a very exciting area of the unfolding psychedelic ecosystem. But another really interesting area that's often overlooked is just like you said, the right of people to change their consciousness, to increase or alter their creativity, to think the kinds of things they, thoughts they want to think, uh, that is an area of this, this policy landscape that's largely overlooked. There is some interest in religious use of psychedelics. I think people often push that to the side a bit and say, you know, the Constitution takes care of that. We have. Uh, freedom of uh uh, we have the free exercise of religion protected by the first amendment Uh, however most people don't realize that that is actually something that's very unclear in practice when it comes to psychedelics and so um, you might have a religious institution or an indigenous community that believes very strongly in using psychedelics for uh, spiritual purposes or 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 traditional healing ceremonies, it is by no means clear that those activities will be protected under federal law. And then you also have people who might just be ordinary individuals who want to explore their consciousness uh, in in greater depth, or or researchers may want to do research that that falls outside of uh, medical research just to better understand consciousness and the mind and psychology. So What I propose in a a paper that will come out uh, sometime next year in the the Florida Law Review, it focuses on the First Amendment, but instead of looking at uh, the free exercise right, I'm looking at freedom of expression, so freedom of speech under the First Amendment. And the idea is that when people use psychedelics, they often report receiving these really profound insights that often prompt them to look at their lives in a profound new way or to change their behaviors. They might realize, for example, they've been using cocaine for a while. They no longer want to do that. They realize they're, they're, they're hurting themselves. Maybe they knew this on some subconscious level before, or maybe um, we're talking about a relationship that they've realized they've been ignoring repairing for a long time. And when they use the psychedelic, they realize, you know, I really need to call my brother and, and mend this relationship. So they receive these insights that have the qualities of speech that you know they might be coming from an area of their subconscious mind. Some people feel like they're coming from nature or another dimension or from uh, deceased relatives. We we don't really know, and on some level, it doesn't matter. The point is that they are receiving speech, and there is a, a a right to receive information and ideas protected by the First Amendment, and so that's what I'm arguing for in this paper. And it's it's difficult, like I think, at first blush, because
0: we uh, we presume when we're talking about speech, we're talking about discrete humans communicating with one another. And that's not necessarily what you're talking about at all. You're talking about the right to receive messages from within part of our own
1: brains, potentially. Correct. Yeah. It it used to be that the, the, the right to free speech often focused on the rights of speakers, the right of someone speaking to express their opinion. That has shifted significantly over time. And it's widely acknowledged that Our First Amendment right to free speech is largely based on the rights of listeners. So the rights of listeners to receive not only what we would consider human speech, but also information. There are all all kinds of really interesting thought experiments where you can think of situations where there might be information and there's no speaker, there's no human speaker, and yet you would still want to protect someone's right to receive that information under the first amendment. So there's some interesting examples. One of them is a rock formation, a naturally occurring rock formation that some people just think for some reason its shape evokes violence, violent thoughts, violent behaviors. You can make a very very plausible argument that the first amendment would still protect someone's right to view that naturally occurring formation, even though there's no human creator or no speaker in that case. And so some argue we can even apply this logic to things like artificial intelligence speech or robot speech, or even data that computers produce. And so my argument is that if that's the case, we can equally apply that argument to data that originates from subconscious regions of our brains. And if you if you uh, examine... The thinking in the founding era for
0: people who care about originalism, uh, it was pretty well understood that the, the right of self-medication was so fundamental that uh, founders in defending the right of free speech would refer to the right of self-medication and saying, well, we all understand we have this right, so clearly we ought to have the right to, to say what we want. And, and that <laughs> it seems like these two dovetail pretty, pretty neatly together.
1: Well, the right, to, the right to receive medical care is interesting because that is something that the courts have opined on and established that there is no right, there's no constitutional right to receive medical care. But I think we're talking about something a little different here, you know, something a little more fundamental. You can frame, if someone is using an addictive substance, uh, that might be categorized as a medical condition. But there might be something much deeper going on, right, that's causing them to use that substance in the first place. They might be having sort of an existential crisis or a lack of meaning. Maybe it's that that they're actually trying to address by using the psychedelic substance. That doesn't necessarily have to fall within the healthcare system. Or if someone is part of a spiritual community, and there are these communities cropping up around the country, and some of them have been in existence for a very long time, in the case of uh, you know, indigenous or Native American groups, hundreds of years, uh, they might be healing some sort of spiritual wound. It doesn't necessarily have to be a shoehorned into the medical community. Of course, you know, there is a great, very important role for psychedelics in healthcare. I would never suggest that we can talk more about that. I think it's really important to, to run the clinical trials and approve psychedelics from the FDA. But this is a you know another area that we're talking about that's I think equally important but is often sort of overlooked in policy conversations. So, I, I, and I really think
0: that uh, whether or not people recognize that out front, it seems like this is going to become a much more salient uh, point that that you're making down the road. Uh, Nita Farahani has recently written a book that uh, I've in, been enjoying, uh, "The Battle for Your Brain." about the ways in which we might face some sort of intrusion from either employers or governments or nefarious actors. Uh, and uh, you know, this, this kind of question that you're getting at here seems like it fits uh, in very neatly with the kinds of things that, uh, that she's talking about.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's a very important conversation that, that she's, that she's having that she's drawing attention to because these same concerns of people's right to think what they want to think is uh, that is a very, very long, protected constitutional idea, this right to freedom of thought. That goes back hundreds of years. The problem is that compared to freedom of speech, it's really not very well developed. The court, you know the Supreme Court might reference freedom of thought and talk about how it's a fundamental right, but if you compare it to, freedom of speech and the cases we have and the legal doctrine in that area, that's far more extensive than freedom of thought, which is really, really very poorly defined. That's something I was trying to do in this paper, sort of flesh that out a little bit more to help prepare us for what Professor Farahani is talking about. We have all of these new technologies like brain-computer interfaces and means of reading people's thoughts through EEG and other types of technologies. I read that Apple just patented a or filed a patent application for an earbud that can actually read your brain signals from within your ear canal. So we're really going to see some unbelievable technologies that have abilities to read and potentially influence people's thoughts. And so we really need to bulk up this area of law, which is right now... Really, really underdeveloped to help prepare for new forms of thought control and to defend uh, the freedom of thought, which is you know continually being encroached upon. So that's a conversation that that may be more
0: prominent in a few years. The conversation right now, uh, we have to start with the fact that psychedelics broadly are Schedule One under the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, and yet there are many in Congress who are uh, looking at uh, trying to make it easier for individuals, uh, particularly veterans, to have access to these drugs to uh, help work through some dif- difficulties that they're having, uh, be it uh, PTSD or traumatic brain injury or uh, any number of other uh, problems that, that we typically associate with having seen combat or seen some, some terrible things in their uh service to the united states so if you could characterize how you see that discussion as uh, going right now and and as you noted before we
1: started recording it's moving very quickly it's quite impressive i think two years ago it it really wouldn't have seemed very plausible that you would see significant interest in congress and in federal agencies in psychedelics uh, even earlier, there were a couple bills proposed by Alexandria Ocasio Cortez to try and make it easier to study psychedelics. Because of their Schedule One controlled substance status, it was very difficult to allocate federal funding to psychedelic research. But I, I read recently that when she proposed those bills, she, you know, people laughed because they'd say, "Oh, this is your shroom bill that you're proposing," and it, it was it wasn't really taken very seriously. That has changed significantly, uh, most notably in the past year, where there have been a, n- a number of changes. For instance, uh, there's been a, 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 the formation of a congressional psychedelic caucus to educate members of Congress about psychedelics. And there's been a lot of advocacy from veterans groups. Because PTSD and treatment-resistant de- depre- depression and suicide are such significant problems in the veteran community that's really allowed advocates to gain a lot of traction in the past year and so we're starting to see bills introduced that are are being taken very seriously one of them was the breakthrough therapies act proposed last year and that the idea behind that was if a drug has gone through a phase 1 uh If a drug has gone through phase one clinical trials and been given breakthrough therapy status from the FDA, which means that it could represent a significant advance over existing therapies, then it should be fast-tracked for rescheduling, and that will make it easier for researchers to study these substances. So we're seeing a lot of interest, a lot of activity. There were some bills folded into the... uh, national defense spending bill this year. Most of them were, were eventually eliminated. But to see things get that far to be approved by the House, for example, is really historic. And so I think in the next few years, we'll see these things being taken even more seriously. My one concern is that interest is really, really very narrow in DC. It's very, very narrowly focused on increasing access for researchers and for veterans. And I think those are really important things to do well worth pursuing, but I do find that the narrative is very skewed in that direction. There's very little discussion of what we talked about, cognitive liberty, religious freedom, things like that. So, but, but states have moved
0: ahead, right? Just, just as they did with uh, cannabis in uh, you know, a decade ago uh, with Trying to create a framework for allowing these chemicals to be used within the borders of their states. Ha- Do you have any any thoughts on how well that has gone? And of course, you know, I, in my office in Washington D.C., Washington D.C. has effectively decriminalized. Um, I believe just uh, ps- psilocybin mushrooms.
1: So that's interesting. Yeah, Washington, D.C. is one of 15-plus U.S. cities now that have decriminalized psychedelics, at least partially. The first was Denver, Colorado, which decriminalized psilocybin mushrooms in 2019. A couple cities, Oakland and Santa Cruz, California, were quick to follow, as was Washington, D.C., which I believe is actually broader. It covers several psychedelic substances, uh, Denver was, was the most narrow, and subsequent cities have broadened that to include not just psilocybin, but things like mescaline, ibogaine, and dimethyltryptamine, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca. So we have those 15 or so cities that have decriminalized. They're all across the country in, in Michigan, Massachusetts, Washington State, California. But we've also seen some really interesting developments on the state level. In 2020, Oregon became the first state to legalize the supervised use of psilocybin. And there was a two-year rulemaking process that came to a conclusion in December. And then just this month, uh, apparently, or reportedly, the first psilocybin client was served in Oregon. Colorado is the other state, the second state that legalized a similar type of supervised use of psychedelics. And unlike Oregon, they added other substances, ibogaine, mescaline, dimethyltryptamine. They're a couple years behind Oregon. Right now, they have an advisory board that's discussing what the rules should look like. And those centers will open in... 2025, most likely. Um, These two programs have a couple differences. Oregon is very clearly a non-medical program. You don't need a medical diagnosis or prescription. The practitioners that provide psilocybin are prohibited from diagnosing or treating health conditions. Colorado appears to be very different. They're going in a more medical direction where they might allow some Limited non-medical use, but for the most part, it appears that this, the the state regulators really view this as a medical program. It doesn't have those limitations on medical use that Colorado has. And then the newest thing is uh, a bill it, it, or a, a voters' ballot initiative that was just announced in Massachusetts. We don't know a lot about what the final ballot language will look like, but potentially voters in Massachusetts will vote on that. In 2024,
0: last year, I believe I spoke with a gentleman by the name of Leonard Pickard, um, who is well known. We'll put it that way in this space. And uh, you know, one of the things that he stressed that I think is is worth noting. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Is when you are bringing these substances to people who have substantial problems, uh, you're necessarily going to get more negative results. Uh, than if they are used exclusively by people who want to be recreational with it and the reactions could be uh, more substantially negative. Now, that's maybe necessary if you want to move these kinds of uh, medicines from their legal status uh, now to something more productive for people. Uh, but he predi- he said, look, if you don't get this right, there's going to be this sort of backlash. Uh, and there these stories that are negative, substantially negative will be highlighted uh, in a pretty substantial way. So, to what extent does that give you any any more caution about how this ought to
1: proceed? This is a very, very complicated subject that uh, we likely can't do justice, you know in a short period of time. But I would say that there is definitely a lot of fear about that in psychedelic communities, a lot of fear that any negative press might potentially set things back by any number of years. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. There will inevitably be negative stories. People will have bad experiences. People will be harmed. I think, unfortunately, people often focus too narrowly on the potential harm because there are also har- or, or i would say physical or psychological symptoms that type of harm there are other harms there can be harms harm prohibition causes harm and this is how things this is how this is where we start get getting quite complicated so what often happens in prohibition is that people will be using substances Illicitly in the shadows, and effectively, you're disincentivizing them from coming forward if something goes wrong. So, we hear a lot about fentanyl. There are the drug supply is often uh, tainted with a, this very, very potent substance, which causes a lot of opioid related deaths. We don't have that problem so much with uh, psychedelics, but people are going to be using them at increased rates regardless. The problem with prohibiting them from possessing possessing these substances or using them is that if something goes wrong, if someone does obtain a psychedelic that is contaminated or adulterated that causes harm, people may may be less likely to contact emergency services to come forward and report that tainted drug supply. That can cause harm because more people might be harmed by it. There are also stories of, of abuse by people who serve as psychedelic guides who have sexually assaulted people under the influence of psychedelics. That could happen, but someone might be afraid to come forward and report that person. So I think you really, it's very easy to oversimplify these issues and say, Hey, look, there are dangers. We need to only approach a very, very tightly regulated, heavily restricted medical approach. But when you when you ignore things like decriminalization, public education, uh, peer support, other approaches to harm reduction, you effectively allow these uh, illicit activities to occur, and people are afraid to openly discuss the potential risks, and it actually inhibits education. I, I think it's a mistake. So I I agree with Leonard that there, you know there. There will be uh, potential harms. And there's an example I like to provide that has to do with another plant called Kratom, which uh, is is a Southeast Asian plant. People often use it and report that it helps them reduce cravings for opioids like heroin or morphine. And for many years, the FDA and the DEA wanted to put it in Schedule 1, just like the psychedelics, which would have caused the same problems with research. Many people opposed that. And ultimately, there was this really amazing letter from the Assistant Secretary for Health, Greg Giroir, who kind of issued the final opinion on this and said, no, you cannot schedule Kratom because right now there are millions of Americans that utilize it. They're using it to help them stay off much worse substances, uh, at least for them, because uh, they're using heroin, morphine, other opioids. What happens if you suddenly schedule Kratom, put it in schedule one? All of those people, they may either have such severe symptoms that they die by suicide. They may seek illicit opioids that are adulterated with fentanyl. Even though it may not be the perfect solution, it's far better to allow them to access Kratom because you're able to, to minimize these public health uh, effects of that prohibition so that that was a really enlightened opinion I think it's a, a, a helpful important case study but unfortunately fortunately these kind of really detailed public health discussions often are avoided and 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 policymakers take a very very narrow perspective on these topics More broadly, I think it's essential to acknowledge that all of these policy approaches are valuable they're important. It's not an either-or type of decision where we have to choose one over the other. We can have FDA-approved psychedelics. We can have robust research programs. Those are very, very important. We can also have decriminalization, public education, other forms of harm reduction. And we should also include religious perspectives and the right to uh, cognitive liberty and to think the thoughts that you want to think, which is something that, you know, is a is a long recognized constitutional right.
0: Mason Marks is with the Petrie Flom Center at Harvard Law School. We spoke last month. Subscribe to and rate the Cater Daily Podcast wherever you please, and thank you for listening.